0: Responding to the multitude of challenges the world faces is never an easy task for governments, companies and citizens alike.
1: And the rocky beginning to 2022 has been a start to the year that the world would rather forget.
0: Russia's brutal invasion of Ukraine that began on February 24th has brought human tragedy and sent shockwaves through a global economy that was only just recovering from the COVID-19 pandemic.
1: Now rising global prices for grain and gas are pushing the cost of everything from food to transport through the roof. The UN Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, said the world is facing multiple and interlinked global crises.
0: So, what is concerning investors, bankers and policymakers the most in the uncertain global climate we find ourselves in? You're listening to a joint podcast from FDI Intelligence and The Banker. I'm Alex Owen-Hunt, FDI's Global Markets Editor.
1: And I'm Berhan Kadbai, Europe Editor of The Banker.
0: In this podcast, we'll be summarising our own impressions along with the thoughts of attendees at the European Bank of Reconstruction and Development's annual meeting, which was held from the 10th to the 12th of May in Marrakesh, Morocco.
1: Both Alex and I were in Marrakesh last week at the EBRD's annual meeting, which was the first in-person annual meeting the EBRD has held since 2019 and the first time it took place in an African member country. It was
0: really a timely and momentous event and we couldn't have asked for a better setting. The event took place at the Palais de Congrès, which is a grand convention centre on Boulevard Mohammed VI. This is one of the main thoroughfares of Marrakech, named after Mokro's sitting king, with gardens, fountains and palm trees all along it.
1: Yeah, it was a really amazing setting. In fact, just to set the scene for our listeners, we took a short moment to discuss our impressions of the event on the last day. Here is what we had to say.
0: So, so Burham, where are we right now?
1: We're at the uh, EBRD's uh, annual meeting in Marrakech, Morocco, the first EBRD meeting in Africa. Absolutely, yeah, and, and the
0: first one in person since 2019. Um, so it's great to be back connecting with people. We're just in a networking area in this beautiful large room with wonderful chandeliers yeah. And, uh, and, yeah, it feels very, very Moroccan.
1: Yeah, definitely very nice, like you say, first one in three years. It's really well tended. You can hear the sort of the buzz of the conference and, um, yeah, beautiful venue, great to be here.
0: There was a short clip of our own impressions, but in the rest of this podcast... We're going to give listeners a feel for the event using the impressions of the many people we met and spoke to at the event. We discuss many different topics, including the EBRD's engagement in Morocco, the impact of the war in Ukraine and the green transition.
1: Absolutely. To begin, let's find out what the EBRD's engagement in Morocco means. Alex sat down with Heiki Harmgat, the EBRD's managing director of the southern and eastern Mediterranean. Here is what she had to say.
2: I think it's a great signal that we are in Africa and that we are here in Marrakesh. It's only the second time we're actually in the southern and eastern Mediterranean region. So it really shows also the, both the interest of our incredibly generous host country, in Morocco, in actually wanting to host us here during these turbulent times, but also it shows this is a growth area for the EBRD where we start investing more, where we start having more policy dialogue and where we're seeing really an integration into our traditional region.
0: So that was Heike Hamgat talking about the EBRD's engagement in Morocco. And she's mentioned these turbulent times that we started this podcast discussing. The theme of this event was responding to challenges in a turbulent world. But of course, we also spoke to many other attendees. Here's some short thoughts from Mark Baer, a managing partner at Constantine Advisors, which helps private equity and alternative fund managers raise capital. He was very happy to be back at the EBRD's annual meeting.
3: Well, I've been to the EBRD annual meeting in Warsaw in 2016, I believe, which was very impressive in a brand new football stadium. So this is obviously quite different. It's a beautiful, uh, palatial Congress center with a wonderful dinner tonight. And the Moroccans definitely do everything in style. So I think uh, Marrakesh was an excellent choice given EBRD now doing a lot in the North Africa region, uh, MENA region region. It's a great way. I believe it's their first conference in the MENA region in Africa. So I think Morocco, Marrakesh was an excellent choice as kind of the gateway to Africa to use as the site for the conference. And so far, the organisation has been splendid, you know, no problems. And uh, we're really looking forward to dinner tonight. Yeah.
1: yeah, it was interesting to hear the different settings in which the EBRD annual meeting has happened. In fact, the last in-person meeting in 2019 before the COVID-19 pandemic took place in Sarajevo, the capital of Bosnia and Herzegovina which is one of the 38 countries in which the EBRD invests in. Alex spoke with Eden Forto, which is, who is the prime minister of Sarajevo, Canton, to explain what the EBRD meeting has meant for his city.
4: These types of events will never be replaced by vast, big Zoom calls. You have to see a person, you have to have a coffee with the person or a drink, you have to discuss things, you have to create relationships, and then, out of that, there will be business and uh, so i guess this is one of the major events for that and i'm i'm happy that they restarted the thing yeah we had we had the big uh, iberdic conference in 2019 in sarajevo yes and it was good also for the, for sarajevo so it's good also for the locals you know it's good and uh, these things need to happen one benefit is that you're on the map for for a reason other than the troubles in political troubles or any, you know we've been famous for the war and uh, We need to step away from that and be known for other things So if we're known in the develop in the in the banking world that uh, we are one of the best Sarah is one of the best clients of EBRD uh, That we are we know how to design and implement projects but also that so that we can do business it's important to know that.
0: I think that's a quite an interesting point there, Burhan, that he's saying that actually hosting these large events are great for locations branding and bring recognition for things other than maybe troubles in the past.
1: Yeah, exactly. And this conference in uh, Morocco is, is, is showing that EBRD is investing in Africa as a gateway to Africa and their EBRD expansion in sub-Saharan Africa. <laughs>
0: we've got to move on to the main topic that was dominating the agenda of the event. And that, of course, is the war in Ukraine. Uh, just to give listeners a bit of context, I mean, the bank, uh, the EBRD, in 2021 extended loans of almost four billion euros in Ukraine, uh, which makes it the third largest country in its portfolio behind Turkey and Egypt. So they've, they've got a lot of presence in Ukraine and have been fundamental in promoting economic development in the country uh, before the war.
1: Yeah, there was a lot of discussion about how the bank and its donors can help Ukraine at the annual meeting. The EBRD has pledged to invest an initial £1 to support the Ukrainian economy this year.
0: Absolutely. And and certainly there was a lot of discussions and and pledges made with different donors and countries. Of course, lots of uh, development finance institutes uh, in attendance. But we also we spoke to many different people uh, across the conference centre about their main concerns in line with the event's themes. Of, challenging, of, resp- of the events theme of responding to challenges in the turbulent world. Here was what Fedanka Pacheva-McGrath, who's a strategic area leader at a civil society organization called CEE Bankwatch had to say about Ukraine.
2: Well, I think the, the war in Ukraine is on everybody's mind. Um, it shocked the whole world. It shocked the uh, um, civil society, we have a member group in uh, two member groups in Kiev so it was a big stress for us to make sure that our our people are safe I think for all institutions including the EBRD this has been a, a big challenge um, in addition we see a real challenge with regards to the shrinking space for civil society um, and in many countries the democracy deficit is increasing um, which makes very hard for EBRD to invest in a in a way that uh, brings real development uh, impacts without harming people um, who are in one way or another uh, related to the projects of the bank.
0: Well, that's that's a key point she's made there. Of course, the EBRD invests across 38 countries and also announced its intention to invest in principle in sub-Saharan African countries and also Iraq. Of course, they have this mandate of promoting democracy. Um, and clearly, there's... There's some issues in some of the countries they invest in.
1: Yeah, we also had discussions not just about the impact of Ukraine on Ukraine, but also the eventual reconstruction, um, which a number of international organisations already estimate will cost hundreds of billions of dollars. Alex, we spoke to a number of um, infrastructure development consultants. Um, what do they have to say about this?
0: It's, it's a good question, Bohan. I think the, the impression I get, it's too early to tell, really. We've seen lots of big commitments from multilateral development banks, such as the EBRD countries, they're committed to reconstructing Ukraine, but the fighting goes on, you know, there's still lots of uncertainty, there's damage uh, still ongoing, unfortunately. Uh, And my impression is that even if there are lots of commitments to reconstruct the country, that we won't have clarity on timeline, and there's not actually a project pipeline uh, in place for for these projects to begin. And of course, there's supply chain issues as well. So construction materials, prices of which are going up, um, there's there's also bottlenecks. So I think my impression is that we won't see any real construction beginning until towards the end of this year. And I spoke to several bankers, prominent bankers at the conference, and here is what one of them had to say. This is Cecile Camilli, the Global Head of Development and Structured Export Finance at Société Générale. And this is what she had to say about the impact of the war in Ukraine.
5: There are many impacts um, of this very unfortunate uh, crisis um, we are currently going through. Um, There's one obviously on the energy as uh, some countries, especially in Europe, will have to uh, find alternative uh, sourcing of energy. uh, So that will uh, probably and, and hopefully accelerate also the energy transition into clean energy, but also Make us uh, think how to um, rethink uh, the industry of tomorrow, the way we use, the way we consume. So, decarbonize, uh, decarbonate, you know, the the, the main. priority for me is to make sure that we involve a lot of decarbonization um, uh, involvement uh, priorities into the industry and also as i mentioned uh, move into the clean energy then there are some other impacts as you mentioned in terms of uh, the agribusiness in terms of uh, african countries uh, mostly reliable into uh, from imports from ukraine and russia uh, which uh, together with the current uh, inflation uh, global inflation impacting uh, those emerging countries will certainly lead into uh, tensions uh, that uh, you know will need to be addressed by uh, uh, concessional fundings by uh, commercial uh, and private and public capitals being involved to support and and address how this uh, uh, these countries can fight and uh, and go through the crisis, certainly
1: yeah, that was a really interesting point by Cecile. Um, there seems to be a lot of unanimity um, that this crisis in Ukraine will accelerate the sustainability transition of EBRD countries. Um, it really highlights the volatility of energy prices and that countries won 't just find new suppliers of energy now, but they will actually get off fossil fuels and move more into clean energy
0: absolutely i mean it 's become an imperative now uh, countries have been it's, been, it's become evidently clear that they're reliant on fossil fuels that come from Russia. And given that we still also have a climate crisis on our hands as a world, we really do need to accelerate this transition.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, others were also concerned about the war potentially spilling over into neighbouring countries across the um, entire central and eastern European region. Here's Mark Baer again.
3: Uh, we believe Ukraine will win, you know, so we just have to help them get over the hump. And EBRD is being a great partner there to keep them going, um, as well as the US and uh, f- a few other strong partners. So we're confident uh, in the long term prospects, but the headwinds are strong, you know, but the equities crisis in the US isn't helping things right now. But, um, you know, we, we're overall bullish on uh, the overall prospects for Central Eastern Europe in the long term. And remains so. And just anything dealing with Russia, you obviously have to contain your risk exposure, because I don't think that economy will be back anytime soon. So clearly, I mean, he's still bullish on the region, but there are concerns.
0: What, what are they going to be the long term impact of uh, impact from the war in Ukraine? Um, many attendees were also coming from Central Asia, which is a region in which EBRD invests heavily. And Certain countries in the region are very reliant on remittances from their population that are living and working in Russia. This includes countries like Kyrgyzstan and Tajikistan. And I spoke to one prominent financier from Tajikistan, K- 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 and this was what he had to say.
2: You know, uh, Tajikistan is uh, much dependent from Russia just because of a lot of migrants in Russia. And uh, during this uncertainty time, we need to identify our further strategy and another problem is that uh, due to the sanctions against Russian banks, now we need to reconsider our corresponding uh, accounts with other banks outside of Russia. So this forum provides opportunity to have contacts from other countries, from banks, from other countries to do some networking. And uh, I hope that we had several meetings already and I hope that during these three days we will be able to start partnership with banks in uh, other countries
0: outside of Russia. So clearly, Burhan, some some economies are are feeling the, the pinch from the international sanctions on Russian banks and that's creating issues for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> These countries are, you know, have been reliant on Russian banks. But obviously now with Russian banks being sanctioned, they've got to find alternative banks. Um, as, as, as the speaker was talking about, they're now using Turkish banks, Spanish banks, Georgia banks, etc. Um, and that, that's probably a theme that we'll see increasingly more.
0: Certainly, I think that will be something to watch how, how the business in the banking industry is shifting uh, away from Russia to other countries uh, that can still be part of the international financial system. Another key discussion point from the event, of course, was sustainability and the green transition, as we heard from Cecile earlier in the podcast. Now, the EBRD provides financing for a lot of sustainability projects in its regions. It has its Green Cities program that focuses on solving environmental challenges in urban settings through stuff like sustainable infrastructure. Uh, investments and also policy. I know you, you you caught up with someone from the EBRD who's focused on this area.
1: Yeah, that's right, Alex. I spoke to the um, EBRD's uh, Managing Director for Green Economy and Climate Action, um, Harry Boyd Carpenter, at, at the event. And um, EBRD's, um, EBRD has a climate strategy um, where it invests more than half into green and sustainable projects. Um, and they want to do more in renewable energy projects. At the moment, the biggest renewable energy projects they do are 250 um, megawatts, but increasingly now. A lot of a lot of people and are talking about the need for gigawatt projects and something that Harry uh, Boyd Carpenter was was talking talking about.
0: Right. So it's committed to invest uh, half of its uh, capital into green projects. Is that right?
1: That's right. Yeah. Financing volumes. Um, it's a target they actually met last year. Um, the first year under this new climate strategy. Um, this year, it might not be. It might not be as possible because. Ebrd's priority is to support Ukraine and the member countries, but um, yeah, that's that's their that's their strategy um, as part of um, helping their member countries halve the emissions by 2030 and reduce emissions to zero by 2050.
0: And indeed, I actually caught up with some investors that are focused on the renewable energy space that were pretty excited about this focus on sustainability. Uh, by the EBRD and were keen to understand where they could maybe play a role within that. What projects were that was the multilateral development bank likely to finance? And I caught up with Wesley Davis, who is a senior managing director at Delphos International, a financial advisory group which helps investors across emerging markets, particularly in the renewable energy space. This is what he had to say about the EBRD's sustainability focus.
3: Um, I I think the focus on sustainability and and seeing that trickle through many different areas of of the the, the bank's operations and focus going forward is is very important. And it's good to see that they're they're walking the walk, not just talking the talk. So that's something. I'm also very keen to uh, see where they're looking to expand their scope of operations going forward. I understand that's what's going on behind closed doors here. There's a lot of discussions about what... Other countries, uh, they will open up to and expand in their remit to operate in. So we're very keen to see uh, what the outcome of that is and, and the timing of that, because we're already operating elsewhere in sub-Saharan Africa. and uh, would very much like to work with EBRD in those regions as well.
1: Yeah, um, it was interesting that he mentioned the um, expanding focus of EBRD. Um, but Alex, I mean, what, what do you think about EBRD potentially risking losing its focus on Europe, especially at a time when... Um, Ukraine and the neighbouring countries in that central and eastern European region um, are relying heavily on the EBRD?
0: Well, I think it's an interesting question, Burhan. On one hand, the EBRD has expanded its mandate over many years, and I think we can only expect that it will continue to invest in different regions. And that that was a concern amongst people that we spoke to at the event, right, that uh, are they going too far away from Europe? At the same time, when we look at renewable energy, you know, FDI Intelligence, we've just had a renewable energy forum this week. And a big part of the discussion we're having is the difference in financing for projects in developing countries versus developed countries. And we need to invest in renewable energy capacity for our green future. So actually, the EBRD stepping into these other regions, whether it's sub-Saharan Africa, whether it's Iraq, I think is is fundamentally a good thing. You know, other people at the event were discussing the need to have inclusivity in the energy transition. And to have inclusivity, we need to be investing in these developing economies. Mm. So here is Cécile Camille from Société Générale again yeah. about her on her thoughts about the need for the energy transition to be inclusive.
5: I think uh, our biggest challenge today is the energy transition. Um, we were already extremely focused on uh, enabling SDG and including in an emerging markets, which is the theme, main theme of this conference here with the BRD. Um, today, the energy transition is really changing the whole paradigm uh, in terms of ecosystem on uh, where, how, and with whom we uh, evolve and with whom we need to cooperate. Um, looking at the value chain, looking at the sectors, uh, we need to take into account all the new stakeholders that are now uh, taking place uh, into new technologies, into new markets, um, into a new partnership, and making sure that across the whole value chain we can address uh, those uh, new projects, including, and including of the emerging markets. Certainly energy transition is a key theme but we will need to make sure that this is inclusive and we do not leave behind the uh, lower income population. The current geopolitical situation I think is even putting more into the front line that we need to secure in Europe in developed markets are champions of tomorrow, champions of the energy transition, champions of the green technology, of the green energy. But again, I think our priority, our responsibilities is also to make sure that this energy transition is inclusive of the emerging markets and um, that we also dedicate our efforts, capitals into uh, emerging markets.
0: I think that's a very interesting point that Camille raised there that, you know, but they talk. People talk about the just energy transition. Clearly, moving from fossil fuel-based uh, industries to uh, renewable energy is is comes with pros and cons. You know, th- you have to think about the jobs that may be lost in that process. And as she said, you know that, that we must ensure that developing economies are included within this transition. Um, certainly, when you look at uh, flows of capital into renewable energy projects, the overwhelming amount, uh, the overwhelming majority, still goes into developed markets.
1: Yeah, something that's increasingly what people are talking about, a just transition, um, you know, the, 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 the people and the countries that lose out um, as part of the transition. So that's something that was talked about a lot of the, lot of the conference, something the EBID is quite keen on as well uh, to, to reinforce the, um, the, the just transition.
0: Aside from sustainability, we also caught up with many attendees about other global issues, notably globalisation. I spoke to Samuel Magoya, who is the director of syndications at the African Development Bank Group, about his impressions of the events and discussions about globalization. I
6: think the, because I went for targeted sessions, I liked the sessions, uh, the panel sessions. Very, very high level, high standard. I attended, for instance, I'll just give one example. I attended four or five of them, very targeted. One of them was the business unusual. And I found that very intriguing because a lot of the issues that are being discussed, nobody has a a crystal ball. So uh, based on research, based on trends, based on experiences of people. And to
0: be clear, that was about what the future of globalization is. Exactly.
6: Although we say globalization is, 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 is a thing of the past, the crisis has shown that we are very, very much coupled. This whole story of decoupling, I think, was a myth. So, the crisis has shown that the world is very interconnected. When when we got COVID in 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 the, in the in the far in the far east, it spread very fast all over the globe. So, you had to find a, a global solution to some of these challenges. I picked that up from. That's a common theme that was running through all the all the conference. And I like the fact that people are. Uh, are candid about the challenges and looking for solutions globally uh, on how to deal with these challenges.
1: There were also a number of NGOs in attendance at the meeting discussing other issues namely the skills gap uh, which is a big issue for women and young girls in this region. Here's Anna Martiningu CEO of Education for Employment and what she had to say.
5: I think there's there's so many challenges um And uh, these challenges were brought forward or exacerbated due to COVID. But if I was to focus on one, and I know that, you know, it's been said several times, but it's the the skills mismatch uh, challenge. Um, You see, before, uh, there was growth before COVID, uh, but growth was unequal. Uh, Now the inequality gap is rising. There are fewer opportunities, and there will continue to be fewer opportunities if the population, the youth, women, is not able to harness new opportunities that are created. So skills mismatch. If people don't know how to do things, if they can't adapt as the market evolves, then no investment is going to bear fruit. You're going to have no return on investment and no return on impact.
1: I mean, that's quite an interesting point, isn't it, Alex, that the gap's just going to get bigger if it's not addressed now. Um...
0: Certainly, you know, we had lots of high-level discussions at the event, but these... These sort of initiatives, these sort of NGOs are doing fundamental work in countries to ensure that, as she said, that the skills mismatch is actually dealt with and that the opportunities are given to the population. And, and this is obviously beneficial to growth in the countries in which they operate. So, Burham, I want to end the podcast on a bit more of a personal note. We have talked a lot about the big topics of discussion at the event, clearly the war in Ukraine, the energy transition. But for you personally, what was it like being back out there again?
1: Yeah, it was great, Alex. It was my first in-person event um, since COVID and, and for many other people as well. Just great to be back there meeting people firsthand. And I think a lot of people had that same, same reaction, same response.
0: Yeah, it actually wasn't my first event since COVID. I've been to a few conferences, but it really did stand out to me as a particularly good one. I mean, there was a diversity of people there from, in terms of countries, in terms of uh, job roles, industries. And it was just great to connect with all those people again and in a lovely setting such as
1: Marrakesh. And it was great weather as well, wasn't it, Alex? Absolutely. They're much hotter than London, certainly, Burhan. <laughs> um, so here's, here's Fedanka from CE Bankwatch on her thoughts of attending the conference.
2: Um, it has been um, very good, a lot better, to have uh, dialogue in, in person rather than online because, you know, on online you have, first of all, a lot shorter time. You have an hour, two hours, uh, and then once the meeting is over, you jump to the next meeting well, here we've been completely immersed for three days in constant, very intensive uh, dialogue with, um, uh, with the management of the bank, decision makers, board members. So it has been um, obviously a lot better uh, to have this space and more time and this face-to-face um, discussions, both formal and informal, because we shouldn't forget the corridor talks, sometimes uh, the most interesting and uh, prolific ones.
0: So clearly Fedanka found it much more useful in terms of uh, her own work, being there in person. You can have much better dialogue when you're speaking with people. There were also other attendees that were loving being back out there. And here is Aya Zagnin, who's an investment professional at Delphos, who really was revelling in the fact of being back in person and meeting people.
2: Oh, that's amazing. Honestly, this is the one thing that I'm really, really excited about. Um, So this is not my first post-COVID-era event. I was actually in Kenya last uh, February for the Africa Tech Summit that I enjoyed very well. But it feels quite amazing to see everyone else uh, once again. And uh, and yes, happy to be here and will be again for the next events.
0: There again, another example of someone who's really enjoyed the EBRD conference and getting back out there. And on a final, final note, we're going to come back to Samuel Magoya, who was very forthcoming and honest. And I think it's a, a, a great way to end our podcast. This is what Samuel felt being back out there at the EBRD annual meeting. Final question is about your personal impression of the event. I understand this is your first conference you've returned to since COVID. Yes. What's it like being out there meeting people? It's
6: actually very nice for my mental health. <laughs> I won't lie. <laughs> very, very nice for my mental health. I've gone out for, every night I've been going out for dinners with different people and this is, this, this is something I really miss because during the conference, because you're in so many meetings, you're going up and down and meeting. For me, I, I, I'll tell you very frankly, it has been very good for my mental health. Yeah,
0: well, Mine too. And <laughs> meeting yeah. you has been a pleasure, Samuel. So there you, Thank you go.
1: Much. Thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, what a great clip from Samuel. Um, a very joyous guy. I don't think anyone was more happier than him at the event. Um, but, but it's true. It's what we've missed, isn't it, Alex? Um, in-person events
0: certainly it's, it makes a big difference for us as journalists we can speak to people on and off the record we can share a drink we can have we can have food together and you know thankfully for us I mean we've, we've got a lot of good material from the event this podcast included the people we spoke to but also uh, anyone listening can expect lots of great coverage from EBRD's annual meeting that's it for this podcast Burhan. it's been a pleasure to, to to join you in the podcast studio today and uh, can't wait till next time yeah
1: likewise Alex Yeah, thanks very much